We begin this morning with 1 Samuel chapter 22. I'm going to read these first two verses. David left Geth and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. Now, we are, uh, this is part two in a series on the run. Last week we looked at, we looked at Peter and how Peter was on the run from Jesus after he had denied him three times. And today we're looking at a different form of being on the run. Because David is on the run from King Saul. The people of Israel called out to God and said, We want a king. God said, Not so fast. And they told Samuel, Hey, tell, tell God. Let Yahweh know we want a king. Because everybody around us has a king. Now you've heard me say it before. It bears repeating, church. When we're overly consumed with being like everyone around us and not consumed with what God wants for us, that's a problem, isn't it, church? That's a big problem. We are overly consumed with being like the people around us. And the Israelites, I always feel like the, the Israelites of the Old Testament represent our lives today and our struggle with God. They, as a, as a nation people are just like our individual walks with God. Because they often said, well look, look at what the people around us have. We've got one God, but they've got lots of gods. Well, you know, there, there's more than one God has got to be the right answer, right? If one's good, then five's better. And then that got them into all kinds of trouble. The number of times, I, the book of Judges, when it says at about the beginning of every other chapter, and the people did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And the people did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And the people did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now what evil is this? Well, there's, there's general sin. But as a nation, it was because they were forsaking God. They were saying, hey, let's worship the Baals. Let's erect these Asherah poles and let's, let's make these altars. And so it was a problem for these people. And I know that that's not a struggle for us of making idols and bowing down to false gods. But we know that in our society, we have a whole different set of idols, don't we? We have a whole set of different distractions that pull us away from God. And so we look at David right now, and he has been uh, he has been anointed uh, by Samuel, and David is uh, the, the guy who went out and courageously took down Goliath. David has this wonderful gift of discernment. And he understands that, hey, God is real and God is faithful and God is here with us and God's not going to let us down. And of course, that is the beginning 
of the end of Saul and David's relationship right there. David shows up and he takes down Goliath and then if you've read 1 Samuel, you know how the people reacted, right? They started singing their songs. Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. Now, Saul is thinking, what are you talking about, his tens of thousands? He took down one guy. That's it. He took down one guy. Saul is thinking, come on, people. Let's have some perspective. The reality is Saul didn't really want to be king in the first place. He was reluctant to be king. But as often happens, someone is in a position of power for a while. And they can swell with pride and it can go to their head. And so Saul, at some point, falls out of favor with God. At one point, he throws a spear at David when they're having a banquet. And David goes on the run. And now we see this scene here in 1 Samuel 22 that David has returned to Judah He's in a cave, and uh, he finds that misery loves company. And so all these people that have a problem with King Saul have now come to be with David. And of course, now that he's back in Judah, his kinsmen are not far away. And so he's got family that comes and has, has his back and says, Hey, we're part of your clan. We've got your back, brother. We are here for you. And then there are those folks that have issues with debt to the king and those folks that are disgruntled against the king for whatever reason. And so now it's an assembly. We could call it a small army, couldn't we? 400 men. And so that's setting the stage for what we're going to look at in chapter 24. Because... David is not on the run from God. David didn't deny anyone. David, though, has a very real and powerful enemy in King Saul. And so David goes on the run from his enemy. And so let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 24, these first seven verses. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off the corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Now, What we're seeing here is 
David and his men are far back in the cave and, and Saul goes into the cave for what he thinks is a private moment. And uh, you know, David's men are saying, hey, it's go time. Look what the Lord has done for you. He has given your enemy right into your hands. So David creeps up. He's conscience-stricken. Cuts off the corner of his robe. And then he feels even bad about that. He could have slit the guy's throat. He could have taken out his enemy. But he chooses not to. If we wonder, why is David a man after God's own heart? It's because when David comes back and rebukes his men and says, No, no. What God gave me, in so many words, is a chance to take the high road with my enemy. What God gave me is an opportunity to not spill the blood of the man that was anointed before I was. Now, I don't know how many of you know what it's like to have enemies. I remember years ago hearing about my cousin Joe. Joe's several years younger than me, and he was working for a company, uh, a commercial real estate company, I guess it was, and they were in, uh, they had a couple of different offices, one up in Boston and one in the Washington, D.C. area. Joe and his wife lived in, in uh, Northern Virginia. And, uh, and so there was a rivalry between the offices. And so the guys up in Boston would send an email to Joe and his boss and say, "Hey, that meeting that we've got to, you know, they, they were doing they were doing video conference calls long before we'd ever heard of COVID nineteen, right? And so that that meeting that we've got tomorrow, uh, it's been moved." And uh, and so they were trying to throw them off, like, "Hey, these guys are not where they're supposed to be. They're not at our meeting when the call came." That's just dirty, isn't it? How underhanded is that? And so Joe and his boss kind of, they, they were sharp enough, they, they were shrewd enough to say, you know, that, that doesn't sound right. Let's, uh, let's make a call to somebody and, and confirm that. Then they found out, well, you know, that wasn't the case. And it didn't just happen once. There was a pattern of things going on here that, that they said, wow. Uh, you know, th- this is this is just absolute cold. You know, these guys are just really jealous of our performance in this office, and they are just really trying to make us look bad. So they had to be, they had to watch their back, and every time they got word about a meeting change, they had to call somebody else and confirm it. And uh, and Joe felt like, man, we've got a couple of enemies up in that Boston office. And it was causing stress, and they were constantly having to check and recheck and verify things to find out what the truth was. And I've known people that have have felt like they had enemies, uh, whether it was their own coworkers. I've known people who developed enemies within their own families. Uh, especially when there's a death in the family and there's money to be divided up, I have seen families get so ugly. And I have made it known to my brother and sister, uh, you know, that that's not going to happen with us. 
You know, that there's no way I'm going to let that happen. I will walk away penniless than to let money come between me and people I love. And church family, I mean that. And, and it's not because I'm perfect. It's just because God has put me in a, in a vantage point to see what's happened with other families and uh, to see how money can tear people apart. Sometimes people have enemies in, in competition and in business. And so what we see, though, is that God knows the truth. I don't know how many of you have had a chance to look in the bulletin article space. Uh, it's a prayer. I, I wish I could take credit for it, but, but uh, this came from the Jenkins Institute, and I don't know if one of them wrote it or uh, if they got it from somewhere else. But uh, this is a prayer that I believe everybody in this room can relate to at least some part of it. And uh, there is a part of it that, that says, uh, you know, thank you for always knowing my heart, my motives, and what has actually happened. Many spin webs that portray your servants in a bad light, but you know. And, you know, that's true, isn't it, church? People can say all kinds of things about us. People can say things about us, whether it's, it's people that are jealous of us, the way Saul was jealous of David. It can be co-workers, family, competitors, neighbors. It doesn't matter. People can talk. Talk is cheap, right? doesn't cost anything for somebody to open their mouth and say something. And it may or may not be accurate or true. Sometimes people say things because they're just repeating something they've heard. They don't necessarily mean it to be malicious, but they're just repeating what they've heard. And that's dangerous, church, to repeating things that you don't know whether it's actually true or not. But some people can just make up lies about other people. And just so you know, this isn't coming from a personal place right now. I'm not feeling attacked, okay? I don't think that there's some rampant situation going on through the body of believers gathered here, but this is part of a series, and I know that there are some who deal with these things. I know I have dealt with it in my life. Thankfully, not since I've been here. But where people say stuff about you that's just not true... And you read the Psalms, and you read how many of David's Psalms are Psalms of lament, where David is crying out and saying, Lord God, I need you because I have enemies. I have people throwing a spear at my head. I have people that have an army, you know, 3,000 men coming after 400. Sounds like they're outnumbered, right, church? But we know who wins in the end. We know that Saul is consumed with something very dangerous for one of God's children. And that's pride. And the biggest difference between Saul's reign and David's reign is that Saul has pride and he lets that personal pride drive a wedge between him and God. And David, on the other hand, 
is someone who is after God's own heart. Certainly not perfect. We find that out about the middle of 2 Samuel. That David does some really, really bad deeds. And it kind of comes as a shock because up to that point we had seen David do a lot of good things. We had seen how David dealt with Saul. And we're about to read a little further into that uh, in just a moment as we pick up with verse 8. But we, we see how, how David dealt with Saul. How when he had a chance to shed the, the king's blood, he did not do that. Even though a lot of people interpreted what had happened as, well, this is God's plan. Now, sometimes God's plan is He brings our enemy right to us just so we can show them love, church. Sometimes God brings our enemy to us so we can say, you know, for my part in this, I'm really sorry. And I'm not going to do anything against you even though I know what you've done against me. Because church family... The world would have us do the opposite, right? The world says, take revenge. The world says, let them get what's coming to them. Well, if they're going to get what's coming to them, it needs to come from a different source than us. And so we are then surprised because we see how David, uh, David deals with Saul. We see how David in this next chapter, uh, if you were to read that, deals with a guy named Nabal. And David kind of sets this pattern of good and righteous behavior. We saw the courageousness that he displayed with Goliath when he was young. And so that's why sometimes it is a shock to the system when someone has the kind of fall from grace that David had later on. But just as that prayer says, hey God, you know, you know that the motives of others are not always good. This prayer also says, benevolent Father, thank you for forgiving me. And Father, thank you for never leaving me and giving up on me. For being with me in my darkest hour. And when I've done my darkest deed. I appreciate the honesty of whoever wrote this prayer because sometimes we're the victim and then sometimes we're guilty of our own decisions and our own sin. And so we move along in, uh, in this section of David's story of being on the run. And we pick up with verse 8. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord, the king! When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay hands on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you. But you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. 
but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. And so David turns the tables, doesn't he? He doesn't say, may the Lord, when the time is right, deliver you into my hand. No, he says, may the Lord protect me from your hand. How righteous does that sound, church? Not self-righteous. Okay? Uh, This isn't... He's not condescending to the king. He's saying, come on, man. You know, you're listening to the wrong people if you think I'm trying to harm you. He's saying, I got the proof right here, man. That's how close I was to you. But I'm not going to shed your blood. And so God is the judge. And he's going to judge between you and me. And so David shows us, church, what it looks like to put vengeance in God's hands if that's what God chooses to dole out. David shows us, church family, what it looks like to say, I've got enough faith in God who sees all while I only see in part. And I am going to let God judge. I'm going to let God do what God knows how to do. It's something that's not my place. And he shows him, you know, this reverence when he bows down to him, calls out, my Lord the King, and prostrates himself before him, showing, I, I respect you. If we know the, the history, knowing how close David was to Saul's son Jonathan, and that Saul drove a wedge between them and their friendship. And so David is showing us, church, what it looks like to say, you know, you're my enemy, but I'm going to show you love because God is judge and I'm not. Augustine of Hippo wrote about 1,700 years ago, you have enemies? For who can live on this earth without them? Take heed to yourselves. Love them. In no way can your enemy so hurt you by his violence as you hurt yourself if you love him not. Read those words, church. In no way can your enemy so hurt you by his violence as you hurt yourself by not loving that enemy. Those are sobering words from a very faithful man by all accounts. And church family, we need to take heed. We need to take those kind of words to heart. Or the words of our Savior Himself in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verses 43 and 44. You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. 
Pray for your enemies, church. That's what Jesus would have us do. The same Jesus that we commemorated just a short while ago as we gathered around this table. The same Jesus who gave his life for us. The same Jesus who allowed himself to be nailed to a cross and allowed his innocent blood to be shed so that we could have a relationship with God the Father. So that we could have the hope of eternal salvation. That same Jesus who said, God, forgive them for this. Because they just don't know what they're doing. In our language, God, bless their hearts. Bless their hearts, Lord. Because they just don't know better. They don't fully get it. And we would know that we would learn that some of them later do. Some of them figure out what they've done. But yes, that same Jesus said, yeah, you got enemies. I understand enemies. Why don't you love them and pray for them? Church family, there's different ways we can be on the run. We can be on the run from something that we've done against God, as we saw with Peter. We can be on the run because of something being done to us. But know this, God knows the truth. God knows the truth. And if we are faithful servants of God, we trust God that in the end the truth will come out and that God will uphold us with His righteous right hand. If you're with us this morning and you have not yet availed yourself to being part of God's family, you've not accepted this wonderful gift of God's grace, we invite you to come forward this morning. We're going to ask you a simple question if you do. If you say, I want to be baptized into Christ this morning, we have one question that we ask, right church? Do you believe with all your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? So far, nobody's ever gotten that wrong. Yeah. It's a very simple question. And when they say yes, we let them enter the life-changing waters of baptism. Not because there's magical power in the water. It comes from the city of Hohenwald. But because of what that baptism represents. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That you have the chance to come out of that water as a new creation. The old is gone, the new is here. And so that's why we stand in just a moment and sing a song. Because we invite you to come and change your life forever. And also, if you've got something that's weighing on you and you need the prayers of this body, then we invite you to come for that reason as well. Let's stand together and sing, Hayden.